You are listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, if you'd like to get out a Bible, you can flip there to Matthew chapter 4. This is a little bit of a part two from last week. This whole season of Lent leading up to the, uh, the crucifixion, the death, burial, resurrection of our Lord. Uh, we're looking at just different events in the life of Jesus. And last week, um, I tried to set up anyway that, that, there are, um, that, that we live in a time where we go, I, I'm talking to somebody about something and they're, I'm saying this, and they're saying this, and we're both looking at each other thinking the other one is absolutely crazy. How could you possibly come to that solution? And they're going, how in the world could you possibly come to that conclusion? And we're, we're miles and miles apart. It might be a, 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 an adult child. It might be a, another family member. It might be um, a friend. It might be a, a coworker, something like that, a neighbor. But um, how did we actually get here? And I, I at least think there's two major things that are not way out here. They're actually things way back here, way at the beginning. Like we talked last week about kind of like a race. And, uh, and at the starting gun, somebody takes off that way, somebody takes off this way, and it just keeps getting wider and wider. And so the issue is not usually the issue that's being discussed. The issue is something back here about how we see the world. And Christians should have what's called a Christian world view. And so the lens through which we see the world way back here takes us necessarily down this path. And somebody who doesn't have a Christian worldview, they're going to go down a different path. And then all of a sudden you start to realize the gap that can exist. And so as much as we talk about this out here, the issue is really something back here. Last week we saw the baptism of Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me, the baptism of Jesus. Um, at his baptism, God the Father declared him to be king. If you remember, he quoted Psalm 2. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. It was a coronation, kingship, psalm, and God just took it and publicly and verbally applied it to Jesus. He is saying, <clears throat> Excuse me, Jesus is the king. This is the king. And so, way back here, what we have is, is Christ king or not? If he is, you're going to follow one way, and if he's not, there will be a different way that you go, and then you get way out here, and we're, it's like we're speaking different languages. <clears throat> now, this, what happens right after his baptism in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so what happens next in the life of Jesus is his temptation that you just heard read, where Satan takes him out, and he tempts him, and he gives him three different temptations. And so in the, in, um, in the Gospels, these two stories line up right against each other, except in one gospel. And I mentioned this when we did the gospel of Luke, but the gospel of Luke has an insertion in there between the two stories, unlike, uh, excuse me, unlike Matthew and Mark. So the question is, why in the world did Luke insert this, uh, this other thing, I'll show you, between the story of Jesus' baptism and um, his, uh, his tem the temptation? Um, this is gonna be part two and show us another reason for the divide Today, But what, what, what did Luke put in there and why did he put it there? Well, <clears throat> in the middle of those two stories in the Gospel of Luke, he puts the genealogy of Jesus. And it is not Luke just going, oh, I forgot the genealogy. Let me just sort of slap it in here in the middle of the story between the two. It is, it is very intentionally placed 
right there. So the genealogy of Luke, you've got, in, in Luke's gospel, you've got the baptism of Jesus and then the genealogy and then the temptation we're gonna see today. So Jesus was just declared to be the king. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And then Luke puts a genealogy in between the two and it says something like this. In verse 23, you don't need to flip there, but in verse 23 it says, Luke, or Jesus, when, uh, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli, and then it goes, da, 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 and it keeps going through the genealogy of Jesus, and it gets to, in verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and notice what it calls Adam, the son of God. Adam was created by God, and so the term just used here is the son of God. <clears throat> that God created Adam specifically, and if you're going, who is Adam's dad? Well, you gotta go, well, God formed him out of the dust of the earth. So look at what Luke is doing. He's got the baptism of Jesus where Jesus is declared to be the son of God. He puts the genealogy right here where he traces from the real son of God and goes back and calls Adam the son of God. And then what's going to happen is the real son of God is about to go into the wilderness. Remember the first son of God, so to speak, as Luke is talking about it, failed miserably. He's the reason there, there, there's sin in the world. Adam and Eve sinned and the world is fallen. That was the first, in a sense, son of God and he failed the test when Satan tempted him in the garden. And now we're about to see the true son of God tempted by Satan in the wilderness. It's a very important showdown. Well, let's see how Christ does We'll read the account in Matthew's gospel. <clears throat> this is Matthew 4, verse 1. Notice who is in control of this whole thing. Then Jesus was led up, it says, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So this, is, this event where Jesus is tempted is not accidental. Satan didn't trick Jesus into getting out there. This is the Spirit who descended like a dove at his baptism now leads him out in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And so you've got Adam that failed the test in the garden, and now Jesus is going to have a difficult test in the wilderness. We'll see what happens. Verse 2. This is test number 1. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Of course he was. Verse 3. And the tempter, that's the devil, came to him and said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus is in the middle of a fast, Jesus is hungry, and Satan says, change these stones to bread. You should hear echoes, if you're familiar with the Genesis story, of Satan tempting Adam and Eve and saying, look at the fruit, isn't that good? Take and eat, and they do. And here's Jesus, hungry as can be, he is fasting in the wilderness, and so Satan comes to him, and it says, he was hungry. He'd been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and so he comes to tempt him in a way that makes very, very, very good sense. If Jesus had been out there feasting, and then here comes Satan to go, now let me, you know, I'm going to tempt you. Hey, change these stones, you know, the stones to bread. Jesus could have thought, like, I, I couldn't possibly, I can't fit another morsel. I can't, I can't take another taste of anything. I am just stuffed. But that's not what's happening. If that had been the case, he would have tempted him some way different. But he's not. He's hungry. And so he tempts him to be disobedient and to break his fast. He knows the way that Jesus would be most vulnerable. This is how Satan works today, by the way, is finding our vulnerabilities and exploiting them. Like I picture, let's say it's a, a man and a woman that are, that are sort of, 
you know, thinking if they're going to be dating or something, and they're out and they're getting coffee, and she is listening, she's talking with him and, and just keeps thinking like, wow, he has, her, her inner monologue is, this guy just has so much self-confidence. God, I have, I have no self-confidence, but this guy is just filled with self-confidence. And as this self-confident man is talking, he's, he's looking at her and going, golly, she is, I, like, I feel so lazy because especially in relationships, this woman, she is, she is so hardworking and so focused and just has a fantastic work ethic. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm sort of faking it at times. I'm, I'm lazy and she's hardworking. Okay, so, so what's gonna happen? How is Satan going to go and attack? Sometimes he goes for the big rocks, but sometimes what he might do is he might go to that man and to exploit his vulnerability of saying, just be lazy. Just don't put that much time into it because that's where he's susceptible. Or he might go and tempt this woman in her self-confidence. Oh, you shouldn't have said that. Oh boy, he, I'm sure he took that the wrong way. You better, you better send him a follow-up text and tell him you didn't mean it like that. Oh no, what if he reads the text wrong? Like, like, like really just going at her self-confidence that she has. It's, it's the way you're wired and the way you're most vulnerable is generally the way that the enemy says, that's where I can get you. And so it's good to know that if you were Satan, what would you do to you? like the playbook of you to figure out where are your vulnerabilities? Because oftentimes we just go, I just don't want to think about them. I'm just going to think about the things I'm pretty strong at. I'm not going to think about my own vulnerabilities. But if you carry a lot of guilt and shame, that's where the enemy's going to go. If you are um, internally, if you're desperate for the approval of people around you, that's where he's going to go. If you've got an addiction in your life, he's going to stoke that addiction. Do, Do you know how your pride in your life comes out? That's not a fun conversation to have with yourself. Do you go, I know there's pride. How does my pride manifest itself? And that's how I am vulnerable. You need to know your vulnerabilities to sin because your enemy absolutely does. That's how he comes at us. That's how he came at Jesus. So this is, I mean, right off the bat, he's hungry and he goes, hey, change these stones to bread, Jesus. I mean, this would be a Knockout punch, I would think, right off the bat. If this were me, I'd go, I forgot I could do that. Thank you very much. I'm hungry. He's going to the base level needs that he has as a human being, and he's at his lowest point, and he just has a very, for the God-man, it is a very simple request. And notice what he says. He doesn't say, no, I'm fasting. Here's what he says. He says, but he answered, Jesus answered, it is written. It is written. My father has said, this is in the Old Testament, this is God's word, this is trustworthy. It says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you know the context for what he just quoted? It's from Deuteronomy chapter eight, and it is Moses after they have, after the Exodus, after they've gone through the wilderness, now they are are, um, reminding the people of how God has fed them and cared for them throughout uh, throughout throughout the Exodus. And in Deuteronomy 8, he, he, he reminds them, he reminds them of the manna that God provided, that the Israelites didn't know what this thing was anyway. Um, they'd never seen this before. And it was a sign to say, you are going to have to trust God day after day after day. And so Moses is saying, you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers know. And here it is, that he might make you know 
that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God's people needed food and God provided. And Jesus is saying, if I need to eat, my heavenly father is going to provide. He's saying, because he's had promises from God about what Jesus is called to come and do, he knows it's not his time yet, and so he is saying, I trust what my father has said. Now go back to the garden with me for a minute. The exact opposite happened. Satan came in, he, he called into question, well, God said don't eat, but Adam and Eve, they decided they were going to eat. They basically said, I can't really take God at his word, and here's Jesus with a similar temptation, but far, far worse, saying, I trust what my father says. The first assault of the enemy is not on just his empty stomach, but do you trust God's word? And so is Jesus going to do just like Adam did, or is he going to be the better Adam? Is he going to come and remedy what Adam has broken? And Jesus just said, I'm the new Adam. I will be obedient to my heavenly father. So Jesus, so far, one for one. But it gets even tougher if you can believe that. Test number two. Satan's going, oh, you like this it is written stuff, do you? I can do that too. It says, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, he said to Jesus, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. I can quote scripture too, he just said. This is from Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. How can this possibly be wrong of Satan? He just said the words that are in the Bible. Well, the problem is he's not just quoting, he is interpreting. You might guess Psalm 91 has nothing to do with throw yourself down and then God has obligated himself to catch you. That has nothing to do with what it's talking about. It would be kind of like this. Suppose you go down to the nursery and there's a little toddler, right, right downstairs. There's a little toddler on one of those little, you know, those little bitty slides. And, they, and this little toddler, probably a boy, is like standing up on top of the slide like this, okay? And the teacher is sitting there holding a couple kids and is going, you got to get down, you got to get down, you got to get if you, if you fall, you're going to get hurt. And that kid is going, you are not going to let me fall. And so the kid just locks eyes with her and just goes, and just starts to fall over like that. What is she going to do? She's going to set the other kids down, make a fool of herself if needs be, to run and to catch this little boy before he hits the ground. What just happened is that little kid just took the authority structure in the room and abused this person's um, love for him and flipped the hierarchy, if you think about it. I am now going to force your hand that is not what Psalm 91 is about, is if you just go, I'm going to force God's hand. I'm in, basically saying, I'm in control of God now. I'm going to fall off, and then he's already promised that he's going to have angels catch me. And so Jesus says, that is not what this psalm is about. So technically, you just quoted it, but you are not using it, but the interpretation that you are giving and the way you're applying it is completely wrong. In fact, the psalm in question here, Psalm 91, is about God protecting his people and his people understanding their place before him and directing their full, complete trust in him. And Satan just took it and said, why don't you jump off? 
Instead of understanding your relationship to your father, you should, you should be the big, the, the big guy here. You should be in charge. You should do that and force his hand to have to come and catch you. This is similar even with, um, <clears throat> with Adam and Eve. If you remember the temptation, God just knows that if you do this, you're gonna become like him. He's trying to just keep you down. And they went, oh, really? And so here, it's a similar kind of thing. You do this, and it will basically usurp your father's authority. And Jesus says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes scripture and applies it properly. It's a reference back to Deuteronomy 6 where the Israelites were in the wilderness and they grumbled and they complained. They were faithless. They were tested and they failed. And Jesus says, I will not put my father to the test. I trust his word. The Israelites in Egypt failed. Adam and Eve failed. Jesus is two for two. Lastly, Satan offers Jesus what I call kingship without a cross. Kingship without a cross. Verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. I can give you all of this. I can give you all this glory. I can give you all all this power, and one of the ways it's in another gospel is it sounds like it is a, it is a brief one-time act, like take a knee and worship me, Jesus, and then I will give you all of this. All of this for real quick sin. What's happening is <clears throat> it basically he's calling on him to ignore all the Old Testament promises that the Messiah would come and have to suffer at the hands of sinners. And he's saying, you don't really need to be the suffering servant. I know, I know that's what God said in the Old Testament, but you don't really need to be the suffering servant. All you have to do, just bend the knee. It's be like real fast. No one's around. Just bend the knee real quick, and then all of this is yours. Why, why would a, a king, as you were just declared, why would a king suffer? Why would you submit to anybody else? Why would you submit to the will of your heavenly father? Why would you trust the word of your heavenly father? One little sin for so much good for you. You can have all this stuff without all that obedience and sacrifice and things like that. Here's what he just said. You can have all these, you can have them now. Instant gratification, virtually zero cost. Does that sound familiar? Instant gratification, zero cost. That's the allure of the world today, isn't it? Here's what you can have. You can have it now, and, you know, I don't want it to cost me anything is how I usually think. I, I've thought of, um, <clears throat> you know, if, if I have two options to buy, I can buy the expensive one or I can buy the cheap one. And if I'm talking to the guy at the store and he goes, well, you know, the expensive one is probably going to last you longer and they have better customer service and things like that. And I go, tell me about the cheap one. And they go, the cheap one, is not, it's fine. It's not going to be as good quality. The customer service isn't so great. And I, <clears throat> depending on what it is, I usually go, I'll take the cheap one. Thank you very much. And then it breaks down. And then I call customer service and I start thinking, why did it break down? It shouldn't have broken down. 
Why is customer service so bad? I want, I want the level of quality as though I've actually paid this, this high price over here. I want the level of customer service as though I paid for the expensive one, but I only want to pay for the cheap little one. That's the world today, isn't it? I want a lot for very little. And, by the way, I want it now. This comes out all the time. How can I get what I want with as little effort possible? This is, this is a, a pull in our hearts <clears throat> and a pull in the world's hearts. I think it applies in marriage. If things aren't going well, should I fight for the current one or should I just get a new one? Fight. Or godliness. I want to grow in godliness. I can just sit around and I can just consume all sorts of content. There's so much content out there. And you can say, I will grow in my faith. I'm going to grow in the way that I want to grow. Or we can say, I'm going to grow in the way that is faithfully being here, gathering with God's people, confessing sins, studying his word. I'm going to go through these. And each little time I do something, it might not feel like the heavens opened. But over time, this is how godliness is formed in my life. I am willing to pay the price instead of just saying, what's the shortest thing I can do to try and get the highest benefit? But man, this plays out just in, like, think about money. Like, you go to buy something with a credit card, and I look, and like, do you have enough money for this? Like, well, I don't know, but I will in a month, you know, by the time the bills actually do. But I want, it, I want that now, and so I'll, I might pay for it later or something, but I, but I want that now. You see people gambling and scratching lotter, you know, lotto tickets, and for some of them, one of the things I think is incredibly sad is for some people, it is... I'm just waiting to hit it big. Debt is accumulating. My life is bad. I haven't put in effort, and now I have to hit something big. I've got to get ahead somehow in this way. You see this increase of, of what I would say probably frivolous lawsuits. I want to sue somebody so I can get the benefit from someone else. What's happening here is, though Satan is not technically quoting scripture, he's undercutting what the suffering servant Messiah came to do. Here's a kingdom for nothing. Just one little quick sin. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written from Deuteronomy 6, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The context of what he just quoted is actually around the idea of monotheism. It is Israelites are about to enter the land and he says, when you enter the land, you're gonna walk in and you're gonna get into the land and you're gonna start to forget that I'm the one that got you out of, out of Egypt. And he's saying, do not forget, do not take on the gods of the Canaanites. You serve Yahweh. That's what he just said to him. And he quotes it and says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Hey, Adam, Eve, just bite the fruit. Be your own king. Be your own queen. Have your own kingdom. Don't submit to another kingdom. Don't trust what God has said. Jesus, just bend the knee. Just, you don't have to suffer at all. You'll get such a great reward. And Jesus says, be gone. Jesus quotes scripture saying, I will not serve anyone but my heavenly father. And then he tells Satan, we're done here and sends him away. And it says, then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and were ministering 
to him. This is about trusting God's word. Adam and Eve did not, and Christ did perfectly. In fact, one of the points is that if if Adam or Eve were there being tempted by Satan, or if you or I were there being tempted by Satan, we'd have given in in a heartbeat. Oh yeah, that's bread, great idea. Didn't think about that. And we're, we're, we, did, we do it again. And here is Jesus getting hit, what R.C. Sproul, what Sproul calls the blitzkrieg assault of hell on the Savior and the veracity of God's word. This is why Luke sticks the, the genealogy in here to say, look at Adam, the son of God, and now watch the real son of God. Let me just compare briefly Adam and Jesus to look at the two things that they had. Adam was in a garden, a lush Garden and Jesus is in the most desolate garden. He's in the wilderness. Adam was full. Adam ate freely in the garden. And here is Jesus hungry as he's been fasting for almost six weeks. Adam has the support of a helpmate suitable, Eve, just for him. And Jesus, don't miss this one, is all alone in the wilderness. And Satan comes to challenge the authority of God's word to Adam. And despite everything he had going for him, he failed miserably and quickly. And Satan came to Jesus and he took all the shots at him. And Jesus passed with flying colors. Jesus says, I trust the word of God. When you think about the word of God, let me try and describe this biblically for you. If you go throughout from, from Old Testament to New Testament, you have the word of God, meaning times where God spoke directly to people, i.e., Adam and Eve, that he spoke to them directly. You have other times in the Old Testament, maybe he spoke through dreams or he spoke through prophets primarily, and so people would come and say, not thus saith me, Daniel, or something, but thus saith the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and you're supposed to trust what God has revealed through his prophets. Then you have Jesus, you have God incarnate, and if you remember the beginning of John's gospel, it says he was the word. It's, it's the, the word that they used to describe him. Jesus was the word. He was the perfect um, declaration and manifestation of God. He was God in the flesh. And then you have the New Testament writers afterwards that look back at the Old Testament, that look um, back at the prophets, that look back at Adam and Eve, that look back at Jesus, that also look at the rest of the New Testament writings, and they call those the word of God. And so the issue here for us today is to say, do we trust the word of God? And you can see how like way back here at the starting gun, if you go, I trust the word of God or I don't trust the word of God, you can start to see why the divide starts to happen. It even divides Christians. <clears throat> I saw something online um, where there was, a, there was a woman at a, at a church and she was reading a scripture and, and someone had sent it to me and so I just, I just watched it and I didn't know why I was watching it. And then I found out she was reading it and I was like, oh, I know, okay, I know this passage. And then she, I thought, I feel like she just skipped something. And then the next part happened. I was like, maybe I have the wrong passage or maybe I'm just, I'm, I'm remembering incorrectly. <clears throat> because it sounded like she read this and then she skipped this part and then went to this part. And then she said, after they got done and they all recited it together as a congregation, she said something to the effect of, um, you might have noticed as we read that together, I left out a part. And she said, I left that out intentionally because some of you would not be comfortable saying that portion. I know where that church is going to be in a few years. You see it over and over. As soon as you say we're going to unmoor ourselves from God's truth, 
This might be offensive to people and the decisions we make are, oh, I just don't want anybody to be upset. So we're just gonna literally ignore portions of the word of God. What happens is you start to just turn and turn and turn and turn and all of a sudden you don't have anything to come back to. And you've cultivated a community of people that say this is not important and actually what she said, and this was this week too, I I read this and I was like, she does not trust the word of God. Trust God. Trust his word. And before you even maybe understand the point or why, trust his word. We trust the living word, the perfect Adam. He trusted God and his word perfectly. He didn't take the shortcut of the suffering servant on our behalf. He defeated Satan in the wilderness. Later, he's gonna go do so on the cross. And eventually, he will return and defeat him once and for all. The temptation of Jesus showed the prince of the world who the actual ruler of the cosmos is and that Satan's days are numbered. You know what the first thing he did after his public ministry? He walked out and he declared, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is saying the kingdom has come. John the Baptist says the kingdom is here. At the baptism, he has his coronation, his public declaration of his kingship. Satan tried on him what would have worked so easily on Adam, but it didn't work. Satan tempted Jesus. Jesus passed and then said, we're done here, Satan. And then walking out, he begins his public ministry and he declares, the king is here. That's the story of the temptation of Jesus.